The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Well, we've been going through the book of Acts passage by passage. And this morning, the next passage we come to is Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. Uh, You know, we live in a world of relentless advertising. (laughs) Virtually everywhere we go, we're constantly bombarded with an endless array of advertisements trying to persuade us to purchase various products and services. And quite often, these advertisements suggest in uh, subtle or sometimes not so subtle ways that the product or service being offered will revolutionize our lives in some way, right? Like if we'll just, you know, drive this car or acquire this phone or start using this thing or, or, or that thing or, or may, even, even if we'll just start using the right deodorant, right? It'll be revolutionary, our lives will never be the same again. I mean, let's be honest, guys. You and I, we're just average people, right? I mean, we live relatively average lives and have accomplished relatively average things. But if we'll just start using this, this certain deodorant, it'll be completely revolutionary, right? Nothing will be the same about our lives. And the sad thing is that that's not even much of a caricature of many of the ads that we see today. So many of them are designed to give us the impression that literally our entire lives will be changed if we'll just buy what they want us to buy. But here in Acts 9, we see a transformation in life that's real and quite radical. And this transformation doesn't come from the latest product or service some company's trying to advertise but rather as the result of a personal encounter with Jesus. Through an encounter with Jesus, a man named Saul is transformed from Christianity's uh, most violent opponent into its most devoted missionary. And that's the main idea we see of this text, that through an encounter with Jesus, Saul is transformed from Christianity's fiercest opponent into its most devoted missionary. As we're going to see, that transformation was so radical that it got people's attention. Like people were stunned and amazed by what had happened to Saul and and at the difference Jesus had made in his life. And as a result, many of them put their faith in Jesus as well. See, people can argue all day long with abstract ideas and deductive reasoning. But one thing they can't argue with is the power of a changed life. I mean, that's the the most compelling argument there is for the truth of the gospel. And one of the most persuasive pieces of evidence we could ever show people. I mean, how can people know that Jesus is alive Well, look at the lives he's changed, right? Look at the individuals like Saul 
who have experienced such radical transformation in their lives. And you tell me whether Jesus is alive or not. You know, just like we know that gravity exists because if I were to drop this pen, it would fall to the floor. Well, we know that Jesus is for real because of the lives he's changed and is changing to this very day. And so let's take a look at the transformation we see in Saul here in Acts 9. If you were here last week, you may remember that Saul was a member of an elite Jewish sect called the Pharisees, and that he had become obsessed with persecuting Christians. I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that his mission in life was to stamp out Christianity from the face of this earth. But then, one day, as he's traveling to Damascus to round up all the Christians he can find and arrest them and bring them to Jerusalem, Saul encounters Jesus. Here's how it's described in verses 3 through 5. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Jesus then tells Saul to go to Damascus and await further instruction. So Saul does exactly as he's told. He's also now blind as a result of his encounter with Jesus and is so grieved and humbled that he doesn't eat any food for three whole days. And shortly after this, Jesus appears to a Christian in Damascus named Ananias and tells him to go to where Saul's staying and lay hands on him so that he can regain his sight. So Ananias does that, and Saul's eyes are opened, and shortly after that, he's baptized. So all of that was last week. And now this week, we pick up the story beginning in the second part of verse 19. For some days, Saul was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? So we see here that Saul doesn't waste any time, does he? I mean, he goes right away and starts publicly proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. That's how Saul's message is summarized in verse 20. And previously, of course, Jesus, or Saul would have said that Jesus was an imposter and a blasphemer. But now, he confidently identifies Jesus as the Son of God, which is essentially attributing deity to Jesus. That's how the phrase Son of God would be understood and what it meant. Uh, for example, we read this in John 5.18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so being the son of God means being equal with God. And notice back in verse 20 of our main passage, that Saul doesn't start proclaiming simply that Jesus was the son of God. No, he proclaims Jesus is the Son of God. Present tense. 
implying that Jesus is alive. See, everything that happened with Jesus was a part of God the Father's plan. God saw our wretched condition, that we were sinful and condemned in our sin and, and completely helpless to save ourselves. And so he sent Jesus to suffer the punishment for our sins on the cross. Somebody had to suffer the punishment for the sins we had committed. And of course, typically that somebody would be us. But in an act of incomprehensible grace, Jesus took that punishment. The very, the Son of God took that punishment on himself. Then three days after that, Jesus resurrected from the dead and eventually ascended into heaven. That's how he was able to appear to Saul on the road to Damascus. And as a result, Jesus now stands ready to save everyone who will renounce their sinful lifestyle and put their total confidence in him to be saved. So that's the, the fuller version of this message Saul was proclaiming. And as we can see in this passage, it was causing quite a stir. Verse 22 then states, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So Saul increased all the more in strength in the sense that both his convictions and his influence grew greater and greater. It also says that he confounded the Jews who live in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He used the Old Testament scriptures to make such a powerful and convincing case for Jesus as Messiah that his Jewish opponents didn't even know how to respond. You know, one commentator writes that Saul's immense intellect, his razor-sharp lawyer's mind, and his Pharisees' knowledge of the scriptures made him, though a novice, a formidable enemy. I would say so. I would hate to go up against him. We then read this in verses 23 through 25. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So this is how much of a nuisance Saul had become to the Jews. They see that <laughs> they can't beat him in the fair fight of a public dialogue, and so, just like with Stephen a few chapters earlier, they attempt to murder Saul. Thankfully, though, he's able to escape their grasp. Then, verses 26 through 30, And when they had come, he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid with him, of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So Saul 
absolutely refuses to be intimidated, doesn't he? Even after narrowly escaping death in Damascus, he travels to Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of Judaism (laughs) and the site of severe persecution in the past. And he continues to preach about Jesus. Like this guy just, he won't shut up, right? (laughs) It says that he continues preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, apparently without any concern about the consequences. Not surprisingly, the Jews of Jerusalem, likewise, try to kill him. And so the leaders of the church there send him off elsewhere. And so that's the story of how, through an encounter with Jesus, Saul was transformed from Christianity's fiercest opponent into its most devoted missionary. I mean, just imagine, if you will, (laughs) imagine what the tabloid headlines must have been like in all the, the supermarkets around Damascus. I mean, former Pharisee embraces Jesus. Christianity's most violent persecutor becomes its most vocal advocate. Respected Jewish scholar who studied under Gamaliel embraces Jesus as the Messiah. I mean, we are talking about something here that it must have been sensational. And it shows us that Jesus is able to change anybody. Like, it doesn't matter what you've done in the past or what kind of a mess you've made in your life or, or how far down the road of sin you've traveled. Jesus is able to change anybody, including you. That's what he does. And he can change you not just in some superficial way, but in a way that is deeper and more profound than you can even imagine. He can totally transform your desires, ambitions, priorities, perspectives, the entire trajectory of your life. He's done it in many of the people in this room. He's done it in me. And he can do it in you as well. Will you invite Jesus to do that in you even this very day? I'm looking at our passage in Acts 9. I love how immediate the change is in Saul. Within the span of literally a few days, Saul goes from persecuting Christianity to proclaiming it. Again, as verse 20 states, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. Immediately, right? From the very beginning of his Christian life, Saul understood that being a witness is an inherent part of being a Christian. He understands that Jesus didn't save him so that he can just spend the rest of his life loafing around and waiting for heaven but rather so he can be a missionary. And by the way, that's God's call for every single Christian in this world. He calls all of us to view ourselves, to to embrace and embody the missionary calling 
that he has for our lives, wherever we are, wherever he's planted us, who, wherever our circles of influence are. He calls us to be a missionary there. And so with that understanding, Saul immediately starts proclaiming the gospel with unbelievable passion. He doesn't care what people think. He doesn't care what the consequences might be. He's absolutely determined to talk about Jesus to anyone and everyone around him. And as I was studying this passage, I asked myself, what was it that made Saul so zealous? Now, by the way, part of studying the Bible well is learning to ask the right questions of whatever passage you're studying. That's a good skill to try to develop. Asking the right questions about the passage. And I think a very helpful question to ask of this passage is, why was Saul so zealous? Like, what, what made him tick? What was it that motivated him to start proclaiming the, the gospel as fearly, fearlessly and zealously as he did? even in the face of his enemies trying to kill him. Now, I'm sure part of it was that Saul was just a very driven person by temperament. I would imagine that whatever he did, he was probably the kind of person that was all in. However, I'm convinced there was a lot more to it than just that. Looking at Acts 9, I believe there are at least three key reasons why Saul was so zealous in proclaiming the gospel. Three things that produced such explosive zeal within him. First, beholding the glory of Jesus. As we discussed a little bit last week, Saul wasn't changed merely by a religious philosophy or a set of theological ideas. He was changed by encountering a person, the person of Jesus. There's just something about seeing Jesus for who he is, his unrivaled glory, his manifold perfections, his love for the undeserving, his compassion toward those in need. There's something about seeing Jesus that transforms us from the inside out. You might even compare the dynamics of it to soldiers witnessing horrific things in a war zone. Even if they're never hit with a bullet or injured in any way, simply seeing the terrible sights of war has a way of changing someone. And obviously in that example, it would be a change for the worse. But it still illustrates the way in which simply seeing something can have a profound effect on someone's life. And in a similar way, though with obvious differences, seeing Jesus in his glory and perfections and love and compassion has a way of changing for the better, of course just as it did Saul in this passage. After encountering Jesus and, and beholding his glory, 
Saul was never the same again. And hopefully, you're seeking that as well, to some degree. Now, obviously, you're probably not going to encounter Jesus face to face the way Saul did, but hopefully, you're still seeking something similar in the course of your daily life. As you spend time contemplating the portrait of Jesus that we see in the Bible and, and pursuing a deeper relationship with Jesus in prayer and seeking a greater sense of the presence of Jesus, even in the midst of ordinary life activities. Seeing and encountering Jesus is what changes you. And it's one of the key things that contributed to the remarkable zeal Saul demonstrates in this passage. Also, I believe Saul was so eager to share the gospel because secondly, he had compassion for those who were where he once was. Notice in verse 20, as soon as Saul becomes a Christian and starts proclaiming the gospel, where does he go to do that? He goes to the synagogues, right? Now there were, of course, probably some strategic reasons for him doing that. But surely, Saul also had compassion for those who were where he once was. For those who were afflicted by the same blindness and imprisoned by the same lies that he once embraced. For example, imagine that you were homeless in the past. Wouldn't that give you a greater sense of compassion than you'd otherwise have for those who are homeless now? Or maybe if you were an addict in the past, that, that would probably cause you to be more uh, compassionate and caring about those who are struggling with an addiction in the present. And in all likelihood, that was the case for Saul as well. As he looked around the synagogues and at the faces of the people in attendance, he saw himself. He saw what he had once been. You know, if you've been a Christian for a long time, it's all too easy to forget what you used to be. But don't let yourself forget that. Remember that just like many of the people you encounter in your day-to-day -day life, that you also used to be enslaved by sinful desires and destined to face God's wrath and obstinate in your rebellion and for all practical purposes, oblivious to your need for a savior, right? That was you at one time. And that was me as well. And so as we see people who are far from God all around us and, and we think about the way we used to be basically just like them, should that not fill us with a, a sense of compassion for them and a greater inclination to share the gospel with them? I pray that it does. And I'm convinced that that was one of the factors at work in Saul's heart as well. And then finally, I believe Saul was motivated in his zeal by gratitude for all that had been forgiven him. I imagine one of the offenses foremost in his mind was his role in the murder of Stephen 
that we saw back in Acts 7. And not only that, but Saul was also responsible for the deaths of an unspecified number of other Christians as well. As he himself testifies in Acts 26.10, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So there was some real blood on Saul's hand. Yet I'm reminded of what Jesus said that time when uh, the notoriously immoral woman came and anointed his feet with perfume. He said in Luke 7, 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. The point is that the more of God's forgiveness someone has experienced or, or is conscious of experiencing, the more they tend to love God. And that was certainly the case for Saul as well. The memory of the terrible things he had done was no doubt fresh in his mind. And I think we could make the case that it remained fresh in his mind for the rest of his life. So as a result, Saul can't help but be overcome with gratitude toward the one who had forgiven him. He knew how much he had been forgiven and was therefore profoundly grateful. And as we see in this passage, that gratitude finds its natural expression in Saul's attempts to reach others with the gospel. And thinking of our own lives, you know, even though our sins probably aren't quite what Saul's were, uh, the fact is that we've still sinned against God in appalling ways, especially when you consider God's perfect holiness and righteousness. And even though we certainly don't want to dwell on all of those sins in an unhealthy way, it's still important for us to remember how much we've been forgiven. Because the more conscious we are of how much we've been forgiven, the more grateful we'll be toward the one who's forgiven us. So maybe it'd be a good idea to spend some time this afternoon considering the degree to which these three things are present within you. Like how deliberately are you seeking a closer relationship with Jesus and to behold his glory on a regular basis? To what degree are you filled with compassion for those who are far from God? Because you recognize that they are now where you once were. And to what degree are you filled with gratitude because you're conscious of all that you have been forgiven. These are the things that'll produce in you the kind of zeal that we see in Saul. And perhaps it would also be good for us to compare our zeal with Saul's zeal. As I read about the way Saul's transformed in his encounter with Jesus, the most notable thing that sticks out to me 
is the way Saul immediately makes his life all about Jesus. That was probably the central feature of his transformation. Saul immediately acquires a Christ-centered ambition for his life. And as we read on in Acts and throughout the New Testament, we see that Saul would maintain that Christ-centered ambition until the day he died. And so here's the question. To what degree do you have a Christ-centered ambition for your life? You know, just to be honest, uh, it's hard to escape the impression that for us as Christians in America, especially living in the 21st century, our ambition for the Lord often falls lamentably short in many ways of what it should be. All too often we get so caught up in this thing called the American dream. And the thing is, it happens almost without us even realizing it many times. Like for most Christians, I don't think it's like, you know, one day they just make a decision that the American dream is going to be more important to them than Jesus is. It's just the air we breathe. We're constantly breathing in the air of the earthly ambitions that people orient their lives around. A substantial income, a nice house, late model cars, enviable vacations, impressive jewelry, prestigious colleges for our kids, well-funded retirement accounts, (laughs) and on and on. These things are the air we breathe. And it's nearly impossible to constantly breathe in the air of these things without being drawn in by them to a certain degree and beginning to think that that's what life is all about. And that's precisely why we need passages like Acts 9 and examples like Saul to remind us that that's not what life is all about. Instead, God calls us to have an ambition for our lives that's infinitely higher. You know, John Piper famously tells the story of two missionaries named Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards who were both killed in Cameroon. Uh, Ruby was over 80 years old and was single by choice for her entire life. So instead of having a family, she, she chose to devote her life to one thing, making Jesus known among the poor, the sick, and the unreached. Laura was a medical doctor and happened to be a widow and was nearly 80 years old herself, serving alongside Ruby there in Cameroon. And the way they died was that they were traveling in a car together and the brakes on their vehicle failed, uh, with the result that, they, that the car plunged off of a cliff. Both of them were killed instantly. Now consider this. Was that a tragedy 
Was it a tragedy? Keep in mind that these women devoted their entire lives to Jesus. They were driven by a Christ-centered ambition for their lives right up to the very end. So in my opinion, that's not a tragedy, but rather an example of lives well-lived and eternal rewards well-enjoyed. Piper then shares another story, much different than the first, about a couple named Bob and Penny. Reader's Digest records how this husband and wife duo took an early retirement from their jobs when Bob was 59 and Penny was 51. They now live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, playing softball and collecting shells. Now, I don't know anything else about Bob and Penny's life, but if that's what they were living for, if that early and luxurious retirement was their highest ambition, then that's the tragedy. That is the tragedy. And yet I wonder how many of us have bought into that basic vision for our lives. The American dream of a nice house, the nice car, the nice job, the nice family, the nice retirement, collecting shells as our last chapter in life before we go and stand before the creator of this universe and give an account for the way we've lived. Here it is, Lord. My shell collection. Check out my swing, right? And look at that boat. That is a waste of a life. What a tragedy. So do you have a desire for something more than that? Like the missionaries Ruby and Laura, and like Saul here in Acts 9, do you have a Christ-centered ambition for your life where you desire more than anything to know him and make him known. You're going to spend your life for something. It's going to be spent for something. Will you spend it for the glory of Christ and the sake of the gospel? I'll conclude with this uh, description of zeal from an author Uh, You can tell I've been reading a lot of lately, J.C. Ryle. He says, zeal in religion is a burning desire to please God, to do his will and to advance his glory in the world in every possible way. This desire is so strong when it really reigns in a man that it impels him to make any sacrifice, to go through any trouble, to deny himself to any amount, to suffer, to work, to labor, to toil, to spend himself and be spent, and even to die, if he can please God and honor Christ. A zealous man is preeminently a man of one thing. He only sees one thing, 
He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame, for all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If he is consumed in the very burning, he cares not for it. He is content. He feels that like a lamp, he is made to burn. And if consumed in burning, he has but done the work for which God appointed him. This is what I mean when I speak of zeal in religion. End of quote. To what degree are you zealous <laughs> by Ryle's definition? To what degree do you have a Christ-centered ambition for your life?